Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Just going to wait a minute for people to come on. Assalamu alaikum brothers and sisters and welcome to this episode and session of uh, Mizan Live. This will be our last session for a while inshallah. Um, when we get to the end, I'll explain, you know, what, why that is. We were covering, in this book of Shia Imamiyah doctrine, we were covering um, the last of the controversial uh, issues of Shiism. As I've said before, um, Ayatollah Subhani, in this book of his, he went through it from A to Z of Islamic beliefs. And... He reached the point where, um, after going through things like Tawheed, things like Nubuwa, Prophethood, Imama, Ma'ad, and all these things, he reached that point where, he says, where he talks about um, controversial issues. We covered as many as we could, and now we're towards the end of that. And last session, which was two weeks ago, we went through Article 133 of the book. And Article 133... Um, we didn't get to finish it. So inshallah today I want to finish that article. Article 133 was speaking about preserving the heritage of the Muslims, you know, and those sites, those holy sites of the Muslims and so on. What we, what he said so far was that, look, this is something that everyone does. You want to, you want to preserve a culture, <laughs> you preserve the heritage that that culture comes with. And this is something that Muslim, non-Muslim, everyone is doing really. Or else you will be disconnected from the past, you'll be disconnected from your roots. And before you know it, every, all sorts of assimilation have taken place. And uh, your, your people uh, will lose that identity that they might have had. In addition to that, what he added was that, look, when we get Islamic and we look at things Islamically, preserving Islam's heritage... Preserving when I say heritage, I mean you know the old uh, sites that we have, anything that reminds us of the Holy Prophet's time and maybe before him, after him. Um, the definition is a loose one uh, for uh, Islamic heritage, but all in all, what is meant is yes, those places that when you see them, you can tell okay, this is something that has to do with my roots, with my religion's roots, my past. And so it keeps the faith, preserves the faith of the people. That without a doubt, in addition to keeping your culture, keeping your roots for your future generations, in addition to that, when it comes to Islam, you're also preserving um, the faith itself, kind of. 
helping it out, helping people to adhere to it more and so on. So these are the things that he discussed in our last session. But now he wants to actually, he want, what he wants to do right now is bring some Quranic proof for this, that look, we have to try to preserve and honor these holy sites of Islam. Let's say, for example, the home of the Prophet, the home of Fatimah Zahra, the home of Ali ibn Abi Talib, and so on. These are things to be preserved. He wants to bring verses of the Quran and maybe hadiths for that, which, I mean, we'll talk about these once we go more into them. There are some observations there. Um, he says, The Quran, incidentally, along with other clear textual evidence from the Prophet's life, confirms this principle. In certain verses, the Quran refers to houses elevated by God. Okay, so that's what it is. Fi buyutin Alright, this is a verse that he wants to use to kind of push forward this idea of it being necessary to honor, uphold, and preserve the holy sites, holy places, and not destroy them. As I said last session, like, you go to Saudi Arabia now, you go to Mecca, Medina, there are a lot of things, when, you, when the tour guide is explaining, you know, on the way to Masjid al-Haram, Masjid al-Nabi, they'll tell you, okay, this is a place where, I don't know, Imam Ali had dug a well, for example, I don't know. This is a place where, I don't know, this is the home of one of the Sahaba of Rasulullah, but when you look at it, you, all you see is ruins, or you don't see anything at all, you just see this five-star hotel instead, sitting there. So what has happened is that these holy sites, one after another, have been destroyed. He wants to bring proof from the Qur'an that no, 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 holy sites need to be upheld. And keep them, we need to keep them established. So he reuses this verse. This verse is speaking, I'll read the translation of the verse. It says, in houses which God had allowed to, or hath allowed to be exalted. And in which his name shall be remembered. Therein do offer praise to him at morning and evening, men whom neither merchandise nor sale diverts from the remembrance of God. Alright, so it's talking about houses. You know, once again, these translations sometimes they're so complicated to understand that they need to be translated themselves. So, anyway, let me just say it in layman's terms here. It's talking about homes that Allah has given permission that they are upheld. Okay? So we're going to talk about that later. Upheld, turfa, upheld or raised, let's say. And homes that you know Allah has given permission that they are uh, that they are honored and upheld, and His name is mentioned and remembered therein. Okay, this is the verse that He wants to use. These homes that such things are happening in, people in them remember God. People who no trade, no merchandise distracts them from the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay, so that's the verse. Now someone might say right away, well here it's talking about probably masjids. Masjids are places where Allah is remembered in. And so the Quran is saying, uphold them, honor them. It's not talking about holy sites. It's not talking about, for example, the Prophet's home and that we have to preserve the Prophet's home as Islamic heritage. Someone might say this in response to this verse. He says, it is clear that houses in this verse does not mean mosques. Oh, so what does it mean? Ayatullah Subhani. For the two words are clearly distinguished in the Qur'an. 
the sacred mosque being other than the sacred house of God. He makes an argument here. He says, look, when we look in other verses of the Qur'an, the word bayt, when it's used, it's used distinguishedly. It's, it's distinguished from the word mosque and masjid. In other parts of the Qur'an, he's trying to say, we don't find that masjids are referred to as buyut or bayt, homes or home. No, they're referred to as masajid and masjid. He says, look, for example, we find in the Qur'an Masjidul Haram, and then we find Baytullah Al-Haram. Masjidul Haram is referring to the, 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 that, uh, those boundaries in which the, the, the sacred mosque is located in. Masjidul Haram refers to that mosque, that mosque in, that, that is sacred. Baytullah Al-Haram, he says, is, it, it refers to maybe the Kaaba. So he's trying to say here that, look, in the Qur'an, when we look, these two are used separately. They're not used interchangeably, let's say. Let me see if I can look this up real quick. For example, it says, Surah Al-Imran, verse 96. You see that bait is used here referring to the Kaaba itself, not the masjid that is around the Kaaba. Yes, the first home that was built or raised or erected was the one that was in Bekka, Mecca of back then. So it's referring to that cube, that Kaaba as Bayt, home. But then when it refers to the mosque, it doesn't refer to it as bayt. It refers to it as masjidul haram. Alright, so that's the point he's trying to make. So he says, what he's trying to get out of this is that here in this verse that we're talking about, when it's talking about buyut, which is the plural of bayt, right? Buyut does not refer to, is not referring to mosques here. Because in other places it doesn't refer to mosque either. And the word masjid is used. So don't say that this verse is talking about masjids. And that we have to uphold and honor the masjids of God. No, it's talking about something else that has to be upheld and, and preserved. Right? So he says, according to hadiths, the meaning of houses here, buyut here, is houses of the prophets. So he comes out, he brings out the hadiths that are explaining this verse. Especially those of the Prophet of Islam, sallallahu alayhi wa and his pure progeny. So right here you'll say, okay, if I'm gonna, if this argument is gonna be valid for a person who we're speaking to that is not from the Shia denomination, then the hadith we're using has to be from their sources, not our sources, and that's what he does. He brings hadiths from their sources. Now, I've said this a hundred times, I'll say it again here as well. Just because there are some hadiths in their sources doesn't mean that, oh my god, look at that, they're going against their own sources and so on. No, 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 no. Brothers and sisters, we have to see in the end, in the end we have to see their scholars and what their scholars say about all of this. Right? The same way the Shi'a might, Shia might have hadith that might go against certain beliefs that we might have and so our scholars have explanations for that. Same thing here. The Sunni school of thought, well, their scholars will also have explanations to these. But at the end of the day, we want to show that, look, at least we have some hadith there. And this is what our argument is based on if we're going to use your hadiths to prove something you might not believe in. But as I've said again, these are topics that are highly contested and debated. And so there are books and volumes of books written on these topics. 
right? This whole idea of Islamic heritage, Islamic holy sites, how far are we supposed to go to preserve them? Is it just those holy sites that we have hadith for? Or is it no anything that has to do with the Holy Prophet and his progeny and even his Sahaba? Which one is it? So there's a lot of discussion on these things, brothers and sisters. As I've said, he is keeping it concise, but he's offering a little bit of explanation and reasoning for why we might believe in what we believe in. And of course, basing it on Sunni traditions and sources so that others can also um, see that if we're saying something, there's some traces of reasoning and argument um, in their sources as well. So having said that, he says, Suyuti transmits a saying of Abu Bakr. When this verse was revealed, and this is an interesting hadith by the way, when this verse was revealed to the Prophet ﷺ, we were all in the mosque. So Suyuti is saying that Abu Bakr is saying we were all in the mosque when this verse was revealed. A man rose and asked the Prophet, whose houses are these? The verse talking about houses that are to be honored. That Allah has given permission that we honor and we uphold. So the, pro- the man asked the Prophet ﷺ, what are these houses? Which houses are these? The Prophet ﷺ replied, they are the houses of the Prophets. Then Abu Bakr gets up, he says. He says, then I rose and said, is the house of Ali and Fatima also amongst those houses? The Holy Prophet ﷺ said in reply, yes, it is amongst the best of them. Naam wa min afadiliha. So Suyuti in his famous Ad-Durrul Manthur, yes, he has this hadith there. Of course, Suyuti is one of the great figures of the Sunni school of thought. And he has this hadith there. So Ayatul Subhani, he brings a verse, he proves that the word buyut in there means other than mosque. For that, he will bring you other verses of the Quran to show where bayt is other than masjid. And he also brings this hadith by Abu Bakr. That Abu Bakr said, asked the Prophet what is meant by these homes. And the Prophet didn't say it's masajid. What the Prophet said is meant. The Prophet told him what is meant is the homes of the Prophets, including the Holy Prophet's home, and even including Ali ibn Abi Talib and Fatima Zahra salam's home as well. Okay. He says, now that the meaning of houses has been clarified, we shall address what is meant by their being elevated. Alright, so what I was saying was uphold, upheld, um, revered, I don't know, elevated, established, all of that. We shall address what is meant by their being elevated. Turfar. There are two possible meanings to consider, he says. The first is elevation in the sense of constructing and setting up. So you actually like build a monument, he says. Maybe that's what is meant. The Quran uses the word araf in this sense. So he says, look, to do tarfi' and to elevate can mean physical elevation, building a monument, building a construct. He says, when we look in the Qur'an, it's been used for this. Tarfi' and rafa' they've been used for this meaning. Physical elevation and making, building something out of it, constructing something. Where is that? He says, Surah Baqarah, verse 127, where the Qur'an says, وَإِذْ يَرْفَعُوا you see the word Rafa, and that root of Rafa is used here. إِذْ يَرْفَعُ إِبْرَاهِيمُ الْقَوَاعِدَ مِنَ الْبَيْتِ وَإِسْمَعِيلِ yeah. Which means, and when Ibrahim and Ismail were raising the foundations of the house, which house? 
the Kaaba. Once again, you see here, house is used for the Kaaba, not masjid for the Kaaba. This goes to prove Ayatollah Subhani's point again. All right. Since the houses of prophets, he says, were already built, bringing such houses into being cannot be intended here. Instead, it can only mean the safeguarding of such houses against ruin and desolation. Right? I think there's a little mistake in the translation here. Yeah, there's a little mistake in the translation I have here. So disregard that last paragraph I just read, since the houses of the prophets were already built. Okay, so the first meaning he says is that by raf' and tarfi' what is meant? To actually build something there, build a, con a construct, build a monument there. Just like here in the verse where Ibrahim is doing raf' of the Kaaba, which means to build the Kaaba, to build... There's a construction going on there. Okay. The second meaning of elevation can mean that to not uh, physically establish something, physically build something, but rather to revere it, to preserve it, preserve its sanctity and so off, so and so on. Right? He says that's another meaning of it. He doesn't bring a verse for this meaning of raf. He says it can either mean this or that. Alright. <clears throat> the second meaning of elevation is in the sense of being sanctified and protected. One understands that. In addition to preserving the houses against destruction, they are protected against any kind of impurity that would be incompatible with their sanctity. Okay? Therefore, it is incumbent upon Muslims to honor and preserve houses connected with the Prophet ﷺ, embracing this duty as a means of gaining proximity to him. Right. So he says there's two meanings here that can be meant. In both cases, it kind of is proving his point, he says, it seems. In this regard, it would be of benefit to consider the verse considering the companions of the cave. Okay, so he had that first verse, فِي بُيُوتٍ أَذِنَ and تُرْفَعَ وَيُذْكَرَ فِيهَا so he had that verse first. He brought that verse, explained it, explained the meaning of buyut, explained the meaning of turfa. Now he's going to the second verse, another verse that he wants to use to prove his point. I personally think this verse is a little weaker in proving his point than the first verse because this verse has to do with ashabul kahf, those people of the cave that the Quran has a surah for, surah of eighteen is surah kahf, and so he is talking. He brings that verse or that story in, to try to prove his point. He says, in this regard, it would be of benefit to consider the verse concerning the companions of the cave. Okay, brother scissors, the first thing that someone might say in response to this is, the people of the cave, their time, what, there was, they, there was, they, they had their own religion, peculiar to their time. But why did we have to follow what they were doing? If something was okay then, it might not be okay now. So I want you to keep that in mind, brothers and sisters. But there is a way to answer that, I don't want to get into it. So, in this regard, it would be of benefit to consider the verse concerning the camp companions of the cave, Ashabul Kaf, when their concealed spot was discovered. I don't know if all of you are aware of the story, but uh, the Ashabul Kaf, these, these youth who went and slept in the cave for 309 years, then they woke up, and people found out eventually about them, that, whoa, there's a bunch of youth, there's a group of youth who, um, are, who belonged to 309 years before. Now they passed away after that. 
after the story of Kahf, they didn't, they didn't uh, live that long, uh, tradition tells us. And they passed away. And those same people who had discovered them, now are discussing amongst themselves, okay, these people, these youth who were, of course, very uh, spiritual people, Yes, I don't know, we went offline for a second. Now that they've all died, should we build a monument on them or not? So there is this discussion going on. If you can just confirm that you can still hear me so that I can uh, with you know, c- comfortably and confidently continue my uh, discussion here. Just want to make sure. Because we, we went offline for a second. All right, okay, you can hear me. That's great. Sorry about that. All right, so um, these people started discussing amongst themselves, um, what should we do? Should we build a monument over them? Should we uh, not do that, bury them? What do we do? Okay, so the Qur'an talks about this a little bit. Atla Subhani wants to use this part of the story to prove his point, okay? He says, it says, there were two groups who differed over the manner in which the spot was to be honored. One group said that a memorial to them should be built over their graves, and the other group said that a mosque should be built over their graves. The Qur'an refers to both of these proposals with approval, he says, because it doesn't say any of them were wrong in what they were asking for. So let me pull up the verses, actually. It's not a bad idea to read off of the translation of the verses directly. So it says, وَكَذَلِكَ أَعْثَرْنَا عَلَيْهِمْ لِيَعْنَمُوا أَنَّ وَعْدَ اللَّهِ حَقٍّ so it was that we let them come upon them and these people found out about Ashabul Kaf and they're like, oh my God, there's people from 300 years ago. So we let them find out these people were shaken that they might know that Allah's promise is true and that there is no doubt in the hour as they were disputing amongst themselves about their matter. So these people are disputing what to do with Ashabul Kaf now that they've passed away. They said, build a building over them. Their Lord knows them best. Those who had the say in their matter said, we will set up a place of worship over them. Ayatul Subhani says, look, in this story, Allah doesn't say that one part was wrong, one side was wrong, one side was right. doesn't dismiss any of them as wrong. All it says is that these two are fighting over this. And so those who had more power, apparently they said, let's build a place of worship over them. In any case, if these two opinions were contrary to the principles of Islam, they would have been related in the Qur'an in quite a different tone. Or they would have been criticized outright. The verse is as follows. Okay, so now he mentions the verse here that I just read to you. He says, these two verses along with the deeply rooted history... Alright, so then all right, he goes on. Let me explain these verses before I go on and read what he's concluding. So... Look, brothers and sisters, here someone might say, yes, it says that they built a masjid over them. Someone might argue and say, yeah, so a monument was built, but not a monument like a shrine over these Ashabul Kahf. What happened was they built a masjid. So see, it's about masjids, it's not about monuments. The answer is, listen, who cares? Their graves is what was to be preserved. This is very important here. And, and, and is key to understanding how this verse proves and supports his point. Or else, this, is not, this verse can't be used for that. 
It's not whether a masjid was built or a shrine was built over them here that we, we need. <clears throat> what we need is that their graves were to be preserved as a lesson for those coming later to see and take heed and be like, oh my God, look, these are those Ashabul Kahf that God talks about that were preserved. God took care of them because they took care of their faith and so on. That was the point. So this grave of Ashabul Kahf is to be preserved for a lofty reason. Now they want to preserve it with a monument, some of them want to preserve it with a monument, some of them want to preserve it with a masjid. Whatever it's going to be, the, the graves were preserved as holy sites and as a heritage. This is how he wants to use this verse, Ayatollah Subhani wants to use this verse. So that's what happened on one hand. <clears throat> and on the other hand, Allah in the Quran doesn't uh, reproach them for this. And say, how dare they you know, build a monument or a masjid over their graves. Graves are to be destroyed. Holy sites are not important and stuff like that. No, it seems, especially when you look at the tone of the verse, that there was nothing wrong with what was done. So I told the Subhani here, that's how he's going to use this verse. Now, as I said in the beginning, this verse does prove that point for the people of that time. Someone might say, oh, but that has nothing to do with Islam. And then, really, they're right. This doesn't have much to do with Islam. There is an answer that can be given to that. I don't want to get into it. But all in all, it shows that, look, this isn't something that goes against um, a common understanding of religion. Because if it did, Allah would scold it. In other words, this is not a form of shirk. Because if it was, it doesn't matter if it's the time of Ashabu al-Kahf or the time, or t- the people t- or the time of the pro- Holy Prophet uh, Muhammad It doesn't make a difference here. Shirk is shirk. Shirk has always been condemned from Prophet Adam down. So the ones who usually are against preserving holy sites that we don't have explicit hadith for, their reasoning is that this is either bid'ah or shirk. Well, bid'ah and shirk are always scolded. They're always frowned upon and condemned in Islam and before Islam in all Abrahamic faiths. But we see that in the story of Ashab al-Kahf, this doesn't happen. This reproaching does not take place which shows that there wasn't a problem. This is all I'm trying to um, explain what Ayatollah Subhani is trying to get at here in this when he uses this verse. Okay. These two verses he says, so the first verse was fi buyutin adinallah and turfa'a wa yuthkara fi that first one, elevating and uh, revering or, or revering the homes, certain homes, and the second verse of Surah Kahf, he says these two verses along with the deeply rooted history starting from the time of the Prophet and continuing to this day of Muslims, making every effort to preserve all traces of the Prophet and to safeguard and honor houses connected with him, are clear testimony in themselves to the Islamic authenticity of the principle in question. Brothers and sisters, let me explain something here as well. So we had two verses. He adds to those two verses something else as well. He says, look, we see that it is the ongoing and... and um, and continuous uh, way that people would act from the Holy Prophet's time till today, that they would preserve holy sites. When you see that there's a trend amongst the people, there is a culture amongst the people of preserving holy sites, preserving graves, for example, preserving preserving the homes of the prophets and, and others. When you see that as a dominant culture, on one hand. And on the other hand, you don't see the Prophet or the Imam saying anything against it. That shows that it's something acceptable. At least acceptable, if not good, and if not mustahab, if not even sometimes wajib. 
at least acceptable. So he's adding to this, this is called seerah. This is called the seerah of the Muslimin. This is the way they would do it. This is the tradition and culture of the Muslimin. If there was a problem with this, Islam would have done something about it. Because there are other things that were part of the culture of the Arabs back then and the Prophet like totally stood against. And you have hadith after hadith after verse after verse that is, um, is forbidding such a thing. Right? We don't have that here. Oh, and, and the Prophet of course is aware of the fact that this is something within the people to preserve holy sites to, and so on and so forth. Alright, so he says we don't find any, um, any, anything that tells us we shouldn't do such a thing. And on the other hand, this was widely practiced from the Prophet's time onward. No one said anything, so it's okay, it's permissible. They are clear testimony in themselves to the Islamic authenticity of the principle in question of preserving holy sites and Islamic heritage. Therefore, the construction of graves for the prophets and anything that's connected with the Holy Prophet and his pure progeny and the building of mosques over or alongside their graves, all of these actions proceed from this Islamic principle that he believes is based and rooted in the Qur'an and also in that seerah that I talked about. Alright, so that's Article 133. We have two more articles before we end. Article 134 and Article 135. Article 134, it just makes sense now when we're talking about Islamic heritage, we're talking about preservation of Islamic sites. In particular, in particular, you will find the graves themselves of holy individuals being a point of, of contention amongst Muslimin. Okay, not grave in the sense of a grave and then building a mosque over or something. No, just the grave itself even now. Preserving the grave of individuals. When you go to the famous graveyard and most holy graveyard of Al-Baqi'ah, for example in Medina, what you find that even graves have been destroyed. And all you find there is little rocks and pebbles covering the graves of each individual with like one little messed up stone at the top to show that yeah, somebody's buried here. You don't even know who is buried there anymore. <clears throat> whether it's the Holy Prophet's wives, whether it's his great companions and shuhada of Badr or Uhud and so on, it doesn't matter. Everyone's grave has been leveled there. We have graves of, the, of our imams there, four of our imams there, who are revered by all schools of thought, either because they are imams or just because you know, they are the progeny of the Holy Prophet. Yes, Ali ibn al-Hussein Muhammad ibn Ali Ja'far ibn Muhammad and of course the, the greatest of them all, Imam al-Hasan al-Mujtaba So these, these Imams are buried there, but they're all leveled. These graves are all leveled. Anyway, visiting graves is the, is the topic of this article now. Article 134 of the book. He says, visiting the graves of Muslims in particular, those of relatives and friends is an established practice in Islam. So once again, he's using that seerah argument, it seems, from the beginning. He says, when we look at all the Muslims in the world, that's what they do. They visit the graves of their loved ones. One which brings, uh, it's an established uh, practice in Islam, one which brings about definite positive effects. For instance, the very witnessing of the stillness of the graveyard. 
coming to the place where the light of life of human beings has been extinguished, they're no longer alive, is a moving experience and contains a lesson for those willing to learn. Such persons may say to themselves, this, this uh, temporary life, whose end is to lie hidden beneath shovels of earth, is not worth wasting through unjust acts. Yeah, a person who goes to the graveyard thinks to themselves a little bit. They're like, okay, this is the end result of this life. Me being under shovels of earth, is it really worth, is it, really worth it for me to do whatever I like? to gain whatever I can from this life? Not necessarily. So these are lessons that one gets from visiting the graveyard, he says. They, might, they, they then might take a fresh look at their own lives and reform their spiritual and mental attitudes. The Holy Prophet ﷺ said, visit the graves for visiting, for truly this will remind you of the hereafter. Zuru al-qubur fa'innaha tudakkirukum al-akhirah These graves remind you of the akhirah. This hadith that he brings is from Sunan Ibn Majah. Okay, so you can probably guess that he's going to go um, only after Sunni sources. Now, one thing before I go on is this, that brothers and sisters, we have to understand. Sometimes a group will be a minority, but they will make a lot of noise. And they will seem like the majority. And they will seem like they represent a people and a school of thought. We have to understand that the Sunni school of thought comprises of many, many different uh, denominations within it itself. Just like the Shia school of thought. The Shia school of thought also has a lot of different branches in it. Same thing with the Sunni school, and I think they have more than us even. And so we have to understand that, um, yes, there is a group of them today that has more power because of their petrodollars. And so with dollars and money comes power and controlling of people's religion. And so what we have today is that uh, the Wahhabi school has a lot of that power. And so their version of and their interpretation of Islam, their narrative will be maybe dominant in some places. The least is that it will make a lot of noise and people who see it think that, okay, this is representative of the entire Sunni school of thought. While that's not the case, brothers and sisters, when you look at Sunniism in different parts of the world, you'll find that lots of them go for ziyarah even. They go and visit graves, not of their loved ones, but graves of the imams even. You'll find in the Arba'in walk, for example, people from the Sunni school are also walking. In Iraq itself, the guy will be walking from Basra all the way to Karbala, for example. Yeah, I mean, I think lots of you have seen the videos and footage. People who are praying along the way to Karbala in the Arba'in walk. They are praying in the Sunni way, but no one, uh, no one gets in their way, no problem at all. And So we have this idea, and it's not just in Iraq, it's in other parts of the world as well. We have it everywhere. Even here in America, we have a lot of Sunni brothers and sisters who revere the Ahl Bayt to the extent that they will visit their graves even. So we have to understand, first of all, it's not that Shi the Shia school, Shi'i school of thought will say visiting graves is okay, and then the entire Sunni school of thought will say, no, it's not okay. No, there are branches within them. There's differences of opinion there as well. They all have their own theology and theological schools that they adhere to. Having said that now, uh, let's move on. He says, Ayatollah Subhani says, in addition, the visiting... So the first point he wants to make is, look, people do it all the time anyway, number one. So he's bringing that sira aspect into this whole thing. 
number one. Number two, he says, look, there's a lesson in it for all of us when we visit the graveyard and the graves. And that is that he reminds us of the Akhirah. He brings a hadith for that as well. Number two, in addition, so I guess this is his third argument now. In addition, the visiting of the graves of the great personages, uh, of the great personalities in our religion is a, is a kind of propagation both of the faith and of the holy sites. The attention paid by people to the graves of these great souls strengthens the idea that it is the spirituality of these great ones that gives rise to this desire on the part of others to visit their graves. Right? A spirituality that it brings to all of us, he says. Yeah. When people go and visit these holy sites, what happens is that they start to understand that these people, these people are very important people. It is because of their closeness to Allah and their spirituality that we are revering them. So what happens as a result of this mentality is that we try to be like them. We, 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 what consciously or subconsciously is embedded within us by going and visiting them is let me be like that person. Let me try to attain some of that spirituality that this person had to deserve their grave being revered now. While those who possess great power and wealth but were devoid of spirituality are simply buried in the earth and nobody pays them any attention. No one really cares about where certain people of the past are buried. Yeah? Who cares where, for example, I don't know, Hitler's buried? Do they go visit his, his grave? No. Do they visit, uh, I don't know, Saddam Hussein's grave? No. Not really. Although you'll have some people who will feel that these people are, were good people and they'll go. But whatever, whatever. All in all, Yes, those who are good people of God, those who are spiritual people, those are the ones who are visited more. So what does that do in me? It sparks that desire. It motivates me to try to be like them. Alright, so he brings a hadith here. <clears throat> he says during the last days, so that, that was his third argument. Now he's bringing another hadith. This might be his fourth argument now. During the last days of his life, the Prophet ﷺ went to the graveyard of Baqi' in Medina and prayed for the forgiveness of those in the graves, and then said, My Lord has ordered me to come to the graveyard of Baqiya, and to pray for forgiveness and on behalf of those buried there. Then he said, When you visit them, say, let me pull up the Arabic, As-salamu ala ahli diyari min al-mu'mineen wal-muslimin, yarhamullahu al-mustaqdimina minna wal-mustakhirin, wa inna insha'allahu bikum lahiqoon. Which means, when you visit them, say, Peace to those residing in this graveyard. I don't like that translation. It says, Assalamu ala ahlid diyar min al mu'minin. Anyway, let's just go by whatever it's saying. Peace to those residing in this graveyard from the Muslims and the believers. May the mercy of God be granted to those of us who have passed away and those who remain behind, who are, who are still alive, in other words. And we shall, if God wills, be joining you. In other words, death is going to come for all of us. We are going to also be joining you, O people of the graves. Doesn't that shake a person? Doesn't that move a person? When you say, Inna, insha'Allah, bikum lahiqoon, that we are going to be joining you, that is a, like, kind of like a wake-up call that, look, hey, person, hey, Shaykh Amin, you're going there too, so have, what have you done? So... Hadiths like these not only show that it is sanctioned and allowed, but it is it is encouraged because it's it's giving you a lesson. It's reminding you of things. 
In books of hadith he says, okay, so once again, that hadith that I just read, inna bikum lahiqun, that is in Sahih Muslim. In books of hadith, visiting the graves of the saints and religious authorities is given as a strongly recommended practice. Mustahab mu'akkad, he says. And the imams of Ahl bayt always visited the graves of the Prophet and the graves of the imams preceding them, inviting their followers to do likewise. So now he, this is a message that he's you know, sending out to the Shia who are reading this. He went to the Sunni sources, but then he also says, Hey Shia, the imams have also encouraged it. And for us, it's without a doubt something that is mustahab, mu'akkad. It is a strongly recommended practice. Okay, having said that, before we end this article 134 and go to our last article 135, um, there's one thing I have to say here once again. I want us to be fair. I want us to be unbiased. Brothers and sisters, um, this visiting of the graves and the reasoning and arguments that he brought of verses of Quran or maybe verses of, or excuse me, hadiths of the Prophet and so on, we have to understand that when you go even to Baqiyah and Medina right now, it's not like they don't let you visit the graves and visit the graveyard. We have to be aware of this. They let you visit. They'll tell you though, because I've heard this firsthand when I'm standing there myself in Baqiyah, they will tell you, uh, why do you stand here for two hours? Why do you stand here, for example, weeping? Why do you stand here talking as if you're speaking to someone who's alive? Right, so I've had debate, like not debates, but kind of like discussions and a little bit of a back and forth with some of those people who are guarding those graves of Baqiyah. That like, are you telling us that are we supposed to talk to them or not? Can they hear us or not? What's going on here? And the guy says, no, they're dead. They can't hear you. But then, the, then why is the prophet speaking to them? I asked this question from one of those sheikhs that was standing there once. I said, can they hear us or not? He's like, no, they're dead. They're gone. They've gone to some other place, you know, in the Barzakh maybe. They can't hear you. I was like, okay, if they can't hear us, <clears throat> then why is it the Holy Prophet speaks to them? And he says, you know, this famous hadith that you also believe in, right? Because when you go to the Baqiyah, when you go that, to that cemetery, you find right there in the entrance, there's like a big, big, uh, uh, what's it called? What do they call it? A big sign there that says, uh, it has many hadiths on it. And that the Prophet said, when you go and visit the graves, you know, go and visit and say salam to those who are in the graves and inna bikum insha'Allah lahiqoon and, you know, go on, get on with your life. So I said, if, the, if, you can't speak, if they can't hear us, then why is it that the Prophet is speaking to them in this hadith? He's speaking to them. He says, insha'Allah bikum lahiqoon. He's using, uh, when he's speaking to he's he's directly, the pronouns that are used there, are are directly directed towards those who are in the graves. They're as, as it's as if they're hearing us. Yes, the prophet is speaking in second, um, um, in sa. What is it called? I forgot the word. Yeah, first tense, or is it present tense? Second person. Yeah, he's speaking in second person here, saying we are going to be joining you. He didn't say joining them. He's saying joining you. So I asked this shaykh, what does that mean then? You know what he said? He said, oh, that's just metaphorical. That's just metaphorical, you know, it's just a reminder for us, or else they're not hearing us, really. The Prophet is saying that, so we remind ourselves. So that's the, that's the argument, you know, it goes back and forth, and usually you can't really come to a conclusion on that. It's a tough one for some of these 
the, the people that are there and not letting you do uh, to, not, not letting you visit those graves. But anyway, the point I'm trying to make is this: they'll tell you we're okay with you visiting the grave, but what does visit mean? Visiting the grave means what? Means you go there for a few minutes and you move on. Why do you stand there for two hours? Well, they don't understand that. Okay, for us it's more than that. For us it's reverence of that place. For us it's gaining closeness to Allah by being there. For us it's speaking to our Imam and him hearing us. You know, that's for, for the Shia, that's what it's all about. So they'll say visiting is okay. So all these hadiths that you're bringing us, we believe in them too, they'll say. Visit. But visit means short, you know, not long. Okay, so that's why I say this 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 conversation is ongoing, and sometimes won't really really reach a conclusion. I guess in the end, in the end, it's whoever has more power. They just you know impose their power and their will on these holy sites. If you're in Iraq, if you're in Mashhad or Qom, you will have a shrine there. People will be free to visit those holy sites and those graves of those holy figures. But if you're in <clears throat> Hijaz, since power is elsewhere and in others' hands, you won't be allowed. That's just how it is, I guess. That's Article 134. Once again, this topic is one of the most controversial topics. And so you'll have tons of books and volumes upon volumes of books and speeches and articles written and delivered in regards to this topic, okay? He has kept it very concise. I want all of us to understand this is just to show that this is how, what we believe in at least. This is how we look at it. But the reasoning, argument, back and forth, uh, counter-arguments, all that kind of stuff, he, has, you know, he, is, he hasn't covered here. That's something that needs its own book and books. Okay, last article is Article 135. And when I say last, last for this session, and last for Mizan Live for a while. Uh, <clears throat> after this... We'll be taking a little break from Mizan Live, inshallah. Article 135 has to do with غلو and exaggeration, it's called. غلو is the opposite side of the spectrum of extremism, of going to an extreme, right? So you'll have the extreme that says, don't even get close to these graves too long. Why do, do you, why do you visit these graves for such long periods of time? Just come, say salam and go. You'll have that extreme, but then you'll have the other extreme as well, where people will believe that these figures that are buried here, for example, or even when they're alive, are so, are so, so high that they might be deity, or they might be prof, prophets, excuse me, and so on. That's the other extreme. This is called a ghulu in Islamic theology. And we have this in many schools of thought of Islam. Ghulu. <clears throat> the word ghulu in the Arabic language I'm reading, he says, means going beyond the limit. The Quran addresses the people of the book in this way. It says, O people of the book, قُلْ يَا أَهْلَ الْكِتَابِ or يَا أَهْلَ الْكِتَابِ لَا تَغْلُوا فِي دِينِكُمْ do not exaggerate in your religion. That means don't go beyond the boundaries. Okay? What did the people of the book do? What did the Christians do? For example, قالوا, they said that Masih ibn Allah, that Isa ibn Maryam, and the, Masih, the Masih is the son of God. Or sometimes it's God himself and so on. The Quran scolds that. You are doing ghulu in your deen. 
You're going overboard. You're overdoing it. Don't take Al-Masih, Isa ibn Maryam that high as if he's deity. No. All right. So, that's what ghulu means literally. To overdo things, to cross the boundaries and, and so on. He says they are criticized for ghulu, these people of the book, because they had made the rights of Jesus to exceed the bounds of truth by referring to him as God or as the Son of God. Now, how does this pertain to Islam? It says, after the death of the Prophet, certain groups likewise went beyond the bounds of truth in respect of the Prophet and some of the members of the Ahlul Bayt, ascribing to them degrees of eminence that are the preserve of God alone. They are reserved for God and God only. Thus, they were given the name of Ghali as they had exceeded the bounds of the truth. Ghali means exaggerator, and the plural is ghulat, which is exaggerators. Alright, now he's going to quote a couple of our great, great scholars of the Shi'i school of thought in regards to ghulu. He says, Shaykh al-Mufid, which is one of the greatest of the Shi'i school of thought, Shaykh al-Mufid says, the, the ghulat, the, the, the exaggerators, are those who pretend to profess Islam, but who regard Imam Ali salam and his children as having the properties of divinity and prophecy. It's as if they are God or prophets of God, according to Shaykh al-Mufid, and presenting them as having qualities which go beyond the bounds of truth. He says that in his famous I'taqad uh, book, book Tasheeh al I'tiqad or whatever it was called. I think it was called Tasheeh al-I'tiqad. Allama Majlisi. So he brings Shaykh al-Mufid, which is one of the usuli, I would say. Um, uh, although this is, I'm using it very, very loosely. Or let's say it like this. Shaykh al-Mufid is not an akhbari. But then he brings also Allama Majlisi, which is an akhbari. And he says that Allah Majlis, he says, Ghulu in regard to the Prophet and the religious leaders, meaning the Imams, applies if we name them God. If we call them God, they, are, they have Ghulu. Or that in our prayers and our worship, we see them as partners with God. Or that we see creation or our daily sustenance as being from them. Or that we believe that God has incarnated Himself, you know, Hulul, it's called, in them. Or that we say that they know the secrets of the unseen without inspiration from God. Or that we think of the Imams as the Prophet himself. Or that we presume that knowledge and recognition of the Imams renders us beyond the need for any kind of worship and absolves us of all religious responsibilities. Alright, Ghulu, brothers and sisters, is an interesting topic. And there's a whole timeline that has to be covered. How they were there even during the time of the Imams how they continued, and how till today we even have some neo-ghulu, I would call it. <clears throat> Back in the day, ghulu even, it's interesting, being a ghali, sometimes even would satisfy some of people's financial interests, to that extent. Now, the, the details of that is something else we're not going to get into. But ghulu is such a big thing, that in our rijali books, those books of biographies, of our transmitters of hadith that speak about whether a transmitter of a hadith is a reliable one or not, if you have the label ghali on you, you are thrown aside. 
And sometimes this label of ghali was used very loosely. And so even people who were not really ghali were referred to as ghali. And so then that's where researchers of rijal came. And proved that here ghulov doesn't mean the extreme form of it and so on and so forth. Lots of things to talk about regarding ghulov in the past, during the time of the imams and after them of those main hadith narrators. And even till today you'll have that. That's on one hand. On the other hand, sometimes people are not ghali. They are just sounding ghali, but they're not. Poetry. Things we say sometimes might sound like ghulu, but that person doesn't really believe in what they're saying. It's just poetry. Now whether that's something good or not, something that we should be doing or not, is a different story. Once again, there will be different opinions there. There's a third thing I also want to say here, and that is, and that is that there are also some very, very deep philosophical, mystical, irfani, lofty concepts that if misunderstood might be seen as ghulu as well. But if understood properly are not ghulu and are pure tawheed actually. Sometimes people will rush to call others, you know, kafir, ghali, mushrik even. Because that person has a certain belief which they understand, but that other person has not understood properly and they're quick to judge them as mushrik. This happens in scholarly slash academic for those people. Like I want I want to defend the scholars and academics who might have such ideas. I you can't have a layperson who has absolutely no knowledge of philosophy now comes and starts talking about how they, you know believe in certain things, and then they know what they're saying. No, for them, they need to keep their mouths maybe shut and not say certain things because they're not, they're, not, they're not entitled to that. It takes a lot of philosophy and mysticism to understand certain things. Anyway, that's also another thing out there, that there are some lofty concepts, if understood properly, are pure tawheed, and if misunderstood, can edge on um, and are borderline shirk even sometimes, yeah? So that's something to be uh, aware of as well. Okay, so those are two or three things I wanted to add. Now let's move on. He says, Imam Ali and his pure progeny always sought to distance themselves from the exaggerators. Who were they again? Who were the exaggerators? The exaggerators are the ones who call the Imams God, call the Prophet God, and so on. It says these, the Imam Ali and other Imams, they always were trying to distance themselves from these ghulat, and even curse them. Here we shall relate one sound hadith in which Imam al-Sadiq gives his followers the instruction, warn your youth about the exaggerators, lest they ruin their religious beliefs. For truly the exaggerators are the worst of God's creatures. They try and belittle the majesty of God while claiming lordship for the slaves of God. And this is one of those very, very famous hadiths. Very important. Now it's interesting how the Imam says, warn your youth. It just shows that youth have that tendency in them to fall in love with something so much that they will accept it no matter what and they will exaggerate no matter what. So they might fall in love with somebody. Once they fall in love with somebody who tells them that you know the Imams are this, the Imams are that, this guy will accept and say so the imams are, are gods, for example. Now this, once again, this is during the imams' times. There were people who were coming out straight up and saying the imams are gods. And as I said, they had their own interests in there. Long story. 
And today, a lot of people might sound like that. Either they're just doing poetry, or they just don't know what they're saying, you know, that, you know, what they're saying entails such a thing. And so they have to be reminded, hey, like, you could be misunderstood, and people might misunderstand you. And they might have, as a, as a result, they might adopt the wrong beliefs. Yes? Once again, today is a little different than the past, during the Imam's times. Um, but yeah, we have to be a little careful as well today Not to say or do things that might imply such But yes, our imams have told us themselves that Look, don't bring us down too much either Take away from us lordship We're not gods and lords But then once you take that away from us And we are the slaves of God And the creation of God Then say whatever you want about us of good things Because we have it Right, so we have to strike that balance and middle ground uh, based on these hadiths. Their outward profession of Islam is thus valueless. These ghulat, Ayatollah Subhani is saying here. Their outward profession of Islam is thus valueless. These ghulat that were in the past, that were praising the Imams to the point of making them divine and deity, they would still say we are Muslim. Ayatollah Subhani says their outward profession of Islam is thus valueless. And the religious authorities, meaning the Imams, regard them as disbelievers. Let us note that despite the fact that we must guard against the dangers of ghulu, it must not be thought that all types of reverential belief regarding the Prophet and the Imams pertain to this. No, it's different. We must, as always, maintain circumspection and caution and with the appropriate criteria arrive at a proper evaluation of the beliefs in question so he says on one hand oh shia be careful how you talk but on the other hand don't think every lofty concept now is also going to be ghulu no that's not the case either as i said in the past this label was used very loosely a person there there has been there have been times during the times of the imams even where a person who believed in the infallibility of an imam, was referred to as ghali. While today, the mainstream belief is that the imams are ma'asum, and no one calls the mainstream Shia right now ghali of other Shia. So we have to understand that as well. Sometimes certain beliefs might seem like that, but they're not. And they are actually the exact reality and truth. So we, what, what I want to say is that we have to look to our grand scholars and see what they're teaching us in this regard as well. Grand scholars who are alive today, and grand scholars who've passed away in the past, whose works and books are out there for us to read. Yes. So that is Article 135, which had to do with ghulu. And that wraps up um, this, uh, this section, which was the controversial issues regarding the Shi'i school of thought. Yes, we had a lot of different issues there that were discussed. Tawassul, Bada, I don't know, maybe Isma, visiting graves, Islamic heritage, holy sites. All of these different things we had in there, he discussed them. So this wraps that up. And this session wraps up um, our Mizan Life sessions on this book of Shia uh, Imamiya doctrine. Now, I have to say, we're at Article 135. We finished Article 135. There are 15 more articles in this book. But these articles don't have to do with beliefs or controversial beliefs and questions that are raised regarding Shi'i beliefs. From here on, Ayatollah Subhani speaks about 
hadiths, how hadiths work in the Shi'i school of thought. What is the Hawza, for example? I don't know. What else do we have? The book of Imam Ali. I don't know. Ijtihad. Taqlid, maybe. Wudu. Because, <laughs> you know, the wudu of the Shia is different than the wudu of the Ahlul Sunnah. So, why do we do wudu the way we do? Prostration in prayer, times of prayer, as you know, there's a difference between the schools here as well. He talks about controversial things, but they're not of our beliefs anymore. They are of our legal system. Islamic law, folding hands in prayer, uh, ihram, mut'a, things like that. Uh, Taraweeh, do we believe in taraweeh? Do we not? Why? Khums. These are not beliefs anymore. These are Shi'i um, um, tenets of the faith or practices of the faith that he discusses that there might be differences of opinion in different schools of thought in regards to. So I've, what I felt was that it's not necessary for us to go through that, um, uh, through that part of the book. Yeah, um, Brother Abdullah Muhammad says that this is referred to as fiqh. Yeah, exactly. This is fiqh. I just wanted to use the English of it. And so, since these are fiqhi issues, I don't see a reason for us to go through it. This was Shia Imamiya doctrine. Doctrine usually means faith and those matters that are related to faith. And so we've ended at Article 135 with that. Now, there is a slight chance that I might continue this book later and finish these 15 articles. It depends on a few things. But for now, we're ending it. Mizan Live is going to go on a break until maybe after Ramadan um, and we'll see how what the world looks like after Ramadan as well if you notice this last session was not held in our little studio it was held here um, because of the whole virus issue <laughs> and so inshallah things get better and things go back to normal quick and humanity is also kind of shaken by all of this and wakes up to the fact that look the way we've been living our lives it might be a little bit uh, too much and things have to change with the way humanity is doing right now anyway so for that with that I'll end inshallah either we will start next time with another book <clears throat> or we will start we will continue with these articles if I'm convinced by some that we need to do them um, what what I have in mind is probably to start another book um, that I feel will be beneficial to brothers and sisters out there these recordings that we have they are put online, they're put in the YouTube channel, the videos, the audios of them are put in our podcasts and all that. Brothers and sisters across America, alhamdulillah, wherever I go, are telling me that they are listening to these and they are benefiting from them. And that's the whole idea behind everything that we're doing, is to have that repository of knowledge. Inshallah, others out there are doing their own work as well. We, in turn, are doing our part, trying to do our part, to put as much Islamic knowledge out there of what we feel is priority uh, so that we can give a better backbone, a stronger backbone to the good brothers and sisters out there who want to educate themselves and learn more about their deen. You didn't ask uh, any questions today. I'm not upset because we ended on time, alhamdulillah. Inshallah, whenever we <clears throat> pick up um, you know, doing these uh, and continue doing Mizan Live, you will be informed. All you need to do is please just follow the social media pages, whether it's Facebook or Instagram, um, to, to be uh, informed uh, once we start uh, another book, hopefully, inshallah, hopefully after Ramadan again. 
send us your ideas. Um, let us know what you think would be good to cover next. And inshallah, till our next Mizan live session, keep us in your du'as. Walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.